Our verses come from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, you are the high king of heaven, whose glory fills all creation. Yet we fail to see and believe who you are and what we are, you are doing. Too quickly we become navel gazers, unaware of your mighty plans to save. Forgive and rescue us from the disbelief and hard-heartedness, drowning our souls in despair, and establish us in Christ. What the world rejects, we want to receive, and what the world despises, we want to cherish. We ask that you anoint Pastor Jeff with the spirit of power to deliver your, deliver your word faithfully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Patrick. Well, I hope you all picked up one of these. Did you get one? Oh, we made them for you. So if you didn't, uh, make sure you grab one on the way out. Uh, they are mostly just, in fact, entirely just blank. And they're for you to fill out notes uh, that you think are important from the sermon or maybe some thoughts the Holy Spirit is whispering in your heart and your ears as we go along. We are going to be in the book of Acts for the better part, if not the entirety of next year. Or this year, I say next year. Welcome to 2021. Amen? Yes, thank you. Goodbye, 2020. Yes. Uh, I've titled this message series, The Relentless Gospel, The Church and the Unstoppable Mission of God. Because I think that that is the theme that is emergent from this book as you read it, is that the gospel, despite all Every possible uh, barrier that was put in front of them by the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and the Romans goes forth anyway. So over the last few months, we have uh, taken some time to lay some groundwork for a hopeful, forward-looking vision. And if you missed some parts of our vision series, you need to go back and watch that for sure. And then we carried that through into grounding our Christian worldview and looking at some of the prevalent worldviews that are in our culture today that, frankly, we need to address. We need to be ready to take captive every thought and pretension in the culture that sets itself up against the knowledge of our God. And so the people of God, armed with a biblical worldview, going into the culture filled with the Spirit, knowing His Word and knowing His Gospel, will be what cures. That is what will cure our sin-sick and fearful and idolatrous culture. We're it. We're God's plan. A. And now we're going to examine a book that is going to be the most hopeful book in the New Testament. It is the most encouraging book in the New Testament because, as I said, against all odds, the gospel goes forward. So let me give you a little background of the book of Acts. First of all, it was written by Luke. Who is Luke? Well, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And he features prominently in Paul's journeys and ministry. As a matter of fact, um, Paul actually refers to him in the book of Colossians as the physician. Luke the physician. Now, what do you think of when you think of that term? Doctor, right? Um, 
And so you think of people who, who probably are doing pretty well. Um, hopefully they don't have a lot of school debt, a couple hundred thousand dollars in school debt, but probably doing pretty well. Work in sort of an elitist field. Very few people in our culture actually get to, to be doctors, medical doctors, but that was not true in the first century. In the first century, uh, doctors were slaves. And they weren't paid well. And they knew virtually nothing about how the body works. And so they had a few uh, herbal, medicinal, sort of Middle Eastern type of AIDS. But most of their medicinal cures, as recorded in the rabbinic literature, were absolutely ridiculous. They couldn't heal you of anything. They couldn't heal you of a stomachache, right? So, um, so Luke is called the physician. Luke does not appear to be a slave, which means that Luke is probably a freedman. Luke was probably a slave, and now he's probably free, freed because he, it looks for all the world that he is free to travel with Paul on his journeys in the book of Acts. And so we have what are called the we passages. Luke is writing it, and he says, and then we stopped at Troas, you know, or then we stopped at Miletus or something like that. And so Luke is the traveling companion of Paul. He's also a physician. And the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. It's a two-volume set. In the first century, when you got one, you got the other. It was Luke-Acts. That's the title. The title is not the book of Acts. The title is Luke-Acts. Because Luke is his first volume, Acts is the sequel. And so they are, they are inextricably linked. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a few seconds. And then there are certain large sections, we note, that are devoted to the gospel winning court cases. Why is that important? Well, the New Testament apostles thought it was really important for the gospel to win court cases in ancient Rome. Uh, what you see in every single court case that punctuates this book, this gospel book, is that the church wins the case. They win their case. What's the last case in the book? What's the last court case? It's Paul. Acts chapter 28. He's waiting to go on trial before Caesar. And what's the outcome of that trial? We don't know. <laughs> so a good portion of this book was probably written as an amicus brief by Luke to present to Caesar um, at Paul's trial to say, look at the history over the last 30 years. So it was 30 years later. Look, look at the history of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman world. We win all of our court cases. We have a legal right to exist in this culture. <laughs> That's probably why the book of one of the main reasons why this book was written. But here's its overall purpose. Its purpose for every individual believer is this. It is to strengthen the convictions and faith of the reader. That's you and me through a guy named Theophilus. We'll talk about who Theophilus is in a second. But it's to strengthen the convictions and the faith of the reader by documenting the birth, the growth, and the global expansion the foreign culture expansion of the church due to what? The bold proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the theme of Acts. It is, to say it again, to strengthen the faith of the faithful, to, strength, to strengthen our convictions of faith of the reader, and to document and to do this by documenting the birth, the growth, and the development of the church around the globe and its global expansion due to the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's its purpose. So Luke punctuates his narrative with six summary statements about the growth and expansion of the church. 
After Peter's spirit-empowered sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says, and the church grew greatly in numbers. After the church prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel in miraculous power in Acts chapter 4, it says, and then the church greatly expanded in numbers. After the cleansing of the church of false members in Acts chapter 5, remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we're going to get to that. Those false believers are purged from the church, and what's the result? The church grows and expands in numbers. After the apostles' trial before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, 42, right after that, the church explodes, experiences explosive growth in the region. And then after the first deacons are selected in Acts chapter 6, many were added to the faith after that. And then after the death of deacon Stephen, who was a man full of the Holy Spirit, who preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin, they left that guy under a pile of rocks, And then it says, and the church greatly expanded in numbers. So what's the theme? The theme is that God's gospel is unstoppable. That the church of Jesus will not be hindered. We will not be stopped in a culture that has set itself against us. We will not be stopped because the gospel is relentless. And the gospel is designed for global expansion. So let's read our text here. Acts 1, 1 and 2. And three, says, indeed, I produced the first volume. That's Luke. I produced the first volume, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up. And after he had left directions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after he had suffered, he presented himself alive to, to them, also with many irrefutable proofs, appearing to them over a duration of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Acts 1, 1 through 3 is really the key to understanding his purpose in this book. So let's make some observations from it because it speaks to us today. Number one, it strengthens, as we said, our conviction and faith through the reading of the book. Now that last phrase is critical. The reading of the book is critical. Now, if we go back to Luke 1, 3, which is his stated purpose for both of the volumes, the two volume sets, here's what he says in Luke chapter 1. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. That means a sequential account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. Who is most excellent Theophilus? The title, Most Excellent, the equivalent to that in American culture would be Your Honor. Now, you can call your dad Your Honor. Do you do that? Of course you don't. (laughs) No, that doesn't mean you don't honor your father. But you wouldn't call your father Your Honor. Why? Because that's a title that's proprietary to judges. And so this idea of Most Excellent Theophilus is his title. He is some kind of government official. He could even be a judge. And so Theophilus is likely also the patron of the work. So Theophilus has likely paid for the production of both Luke and Acts and its distribution. And so he writes it to him saying, I, I, I undertook an orderly account for you, for you, most the excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things which you have been taught. So what's the purpose of the book? So that you may know the certainty. The purpose of the book is so that you may be grounded in certainty of the things with which you have been taught. So Luke wants him to read it, wants him to read the book, and he wants you to read the book, and he wants me to read the book. And listen, I want to show you something. 
This reading tradition, this reading tradition in the Judeo-Christian faith is our heritage, and it's one of the primary ways in which God disciples his people is through the public reading of scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when Daniel, before he begins worship, some people get their britches in a bunch over this because they just want to jump into the singing. We never do that. And the reason why we don't just do that is because we want to start with the word. We start with the word and prayer. Because we want to ground our experience of worship in the word. And that's why we get the word and a little bit of exposition before we jump into worship. And this is the tradition. This is the heritage of the Christian faith. I want to take you back to Nehemiah. Let's go back to the past. 500 years before uh, this, Luke is writing this book. Nehemiah 8.1. Now what has happened is the people have returned back from Babylonian exile. The Cyrus decree has let them come back. And they are in their land. What have they done? Through great difficulty, they have rebuilt their wall. They have rebuilt the city and their domiciles. And they have rebuilt the temple, Jerusalem's temple. And now they're in the temple. And Ezra, the high priest, comes before them. And they built a giant stage like this out of wood. They built a wooden stage so he could stand above them and read the scriptures to him. And here's what it says. And they asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the Torah. The law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. So the first tradition we learn here is that we are presented the book and we gather to hear the book with understanding. And so when a congregation shows up to hear the book with understanding, God can transform your life. God can transform your heart. Look at verse 5. It says, uh, Ezra opened the book in full view of the people. This is a scroll, a giant scroll. He unrolls it in full view of the people. And since he was elevated above everyone on this wooden platform, as he opened it, all the people stood up. Why did they stand? The same reason you and I stand when a judge walks into a courtroom. We stand in honor, which is why we don't sit down while we worship. But we also stand at attention. The military also would have their people, uh, their military people stand in attention. We are giving our attention to this. So they stand at the reading of God's word. Uh, and then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And with their hands uplifted, all the people said, truly, truly, right? So what is the purpose of lifting hands? What is it? I, I am here to inform you that Pentecostals did not invent that at the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s. This is a deeply, profoundly Jewish practice. This is why Paul commands, he doesn't suggest it, he commands that when they gather for worship that all the men lift holy hands in prayer. Why? Because this is a posture of surrender. This is a posture not only of surrendering to this message, but also giving your uh, affirmation of this message. This is why they say, verily, verily. Amen, amen. That's what I, amen means. It means I agree. That's true. And so this is what we do when we raise our hands in worship. For those of you who don't do that, you're doing it wrong. You, you are. Amen. amen. Come on. 
so I, here's what I want you to notice, though. I want you to notice that the word was central to their worship. Now, look at the rest of it. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What is that posture all about? That posture is all about obeisance. It's all about genuflection. You get on the ground, and you put your face on the ground, and you say, yes, you, this is the authority over my life. This authority is over me. I don't stand in authority over it. It is the decisive arbiter of what is true in my life. This is what this book means. Now, I want you to notice that their worship is tethered to the word. And this is where people get goofy. This is where some of my, some of my charismatic friends get a little nuts. Because some of the things that people send me from Twitter, the videos from YouTube, usually Pastor Ryan is uh, circulating those about these goofy things that people are doing, frankly, that are bringing embarrassment upon the church. And it's, and it's not because I'm not advocating experience. Listen to me. The same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost is right here. It's the same God. And you and I need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Wrote a little book on that called Father, Son, and the Other One. Pick it up. I hear it's good. But the whole premise of that book is that you and I need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the same God. If God wants to do something in your life, you should be open to that. Listen, you already have a supernaturalist worldview. You already have it. You believe in God. You believe that there are angels and demons, that human beings are souls with a spiritual faculty who live in bodies. You believe uh, that Jesus cast demons out of people in the first century, don't you? Okay, so, well, then you already have a supernaturalist worldview. I hate to tell some of you cessationists this, but you are way more charismatic than you think you are. <laughs> you are. You already have a supernaturalist worldview. Why would you not be open to the work of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do in your life? Why would you not be open to it? At the same time, anything that God is going to do to, to, in your life has to come out of this word has to come out of this book because if it's not grounded and anchored in this word, it's not true worship. And it can bring great harm and great embarrassment to the church. Next, verse 7. The Levites explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people of God could understand. This is what we do every Sunday morning. Never complain about a long sermon. You think I preach long? Oh, no, I don't. I, I agree with Spurgeon. I'd rather leave you longing than loathing. Right? I'd rather leave you longing than mo for more than loathing for what you got. So, so, but you and I need to come with a heart that is full and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And then it's our job to translate the text, to explain it so that we all understand it. We all get on the same page. And this is what they are doing so when you have a congregation that shows up with a heart that wants to understand, that is hungry to understand the word, the red word, the taught word, in a raucous environment of worship, where people are celebrating the goodness and the grandeur of our God, and those people are grounded in his word, in his truth, you will have a church that will change the world. You will not be able to keep people out of that church. Look at what Jesus said in John 6, 63. He says, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Whose words? Not mine. 
I'm happy to do the work of explaining the gospel or explaining the truth so that people can understand it. But ultimately, is Jesus, is his word. And if you and I do not have Jesus, we do not have life. And it is his word that brings life. So we are faithful to read the book. So what does Luke say? I wrote a book. I wrote this book for you. Most excellent, Theophilus. Most excellent, Christ Community Church. I wrote it for you. So that by reading it, you would be grounded and know the certainty of the things with with which you have been taught. You got to read the book. Number two, the book of Acts was written to remind us of the gospel. If the book is central to our worship, if the book is the centerpiece of our worship as we worship our God, then the gospel is central to the book. Scholars have suggested a variety of themes for the book of Acts. But listen, the theme of the book of Acts is the gospel. It's the gospel going forward. That's why we call this series the Relentless Gospel. Now, I want to read you Acts 1-3. Here's what he says. He says, after he had suffered, he presented himself. He's reminding him now of the story in Luke that he just read. He said, after he had suffered, he presented himself alive to them also with many irrefutable proofs. We're going to talk about that. Appearing to them over a duration of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's all in there. And we're going to unpack it. There are two characters in the Old Testament that you need to know that Luke says Jesus fulfilled. Two character types. So there's what's called the suffering servant of the Lord and the royal son. We're going to talk about both of those. The suffering servant and the royal son. And the key is Luke chapter 20. It's the parable of the tenants, a parable you almost might miss, but it's one of the most key parables to the life of Jesus in the entire gospel. Here's why. Because the landowner, according to the parable, started a vineyard. And then he went and hired a bunch of guys to be the tenants of that vineyard. And then after a long while, he thought, man, I need to get paid. (laughs) So he sent his servant to settle accounts with the tenants of the vineyard. And what did the tenants do? They beat the servant to smithereens. Then the landowner thought, well, I'll I'll send my son. Surely they won't beat him. Not only do they beat him to smithereens, they kill him. And so the parable is that Jesus is the servant of the Lord, and he's the royal son. Now, this is exactly the portrait that we find in what are called the suffering servant songs of Isaiah 40 through 55 and 61. The suffering servant songs. Now, if you later, if you just want to make a note of that in your notebook there, go back and read those. Here's what you'll find. There are five psalms. Five songs. They're the suffering servant songs. All of them prophesy Jesus. But the servant of Yahweh, there are only three people in the Old Testament called the servant of Yahweh. Moses, David, and Isaiah. Isaiah calls himself the servant of of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord in these songs. So the servant is mistreated, abused, and beaten for the sake of the people. But he's not, it turns out he's not just the prophet. It's not just Isaiah. It's a future Isaiah. It's a future David. It's a future Moses. Because this servant of the Lord who is beaten and abused and mistreated is also the royal son. As we sang in that song earlier, he's the shoot of Jesse. He's a branch in the line of David. He's the royal son. 
So we have the suffering servant. Now, the, now what Luke does is he shows us in these so songs of the servant, he unfolds his gospel according to these songs. Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, he cites the song in Isaiah 49. And Luke 3 and 9, he cites the song in Isaiah 42. In Luke chapter 4, he cites the song in Isaiah 61. In Luke chapter 22, he cites the servant song of Isaiah 50. In Luke 22, 23, 24, and Acts 8, he cites Isaiah 53, which is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament you can learn. Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant who dies in place of the nation and then rises again, sees the light of life. So, very important. So this is the suffering servant. But he's also the royal son. He's also the royal son. Uh, he quotes Psalm 110, Psalm 9, uh, Isaiah 9, 52 and 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 2, very important. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 29. What is he teaching us? He's not just the suffering servant. He's the royal son. This is the gospel. Now let me tell you. If you only have the gospel of the suffering servant who died for you, for your sins, you only have half a gospel. I have to tell you that. The other half of the gospel, in fact, the first half of it is he's the royal son. He's God's anointed son who is the king of all. Look at Luke 24, 44 through 47. Jesus has risen from the dead and he has appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says he told them, these are my words. That I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead. So there's the Christ. There's the Son, the Messiah. And here's the sufferer who will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. That's, that's the invitation. Come believe this message. This is how you get forgiveness of sins. You believe this message about God's royal son, the Messiah, and about God's royal son who is the suffering servant for all mankind, who suffered for our sins, right? And it will be, will be proclaimed to, in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So the gospel, what is the gospel? You got to know it. The gospel is the royal announcement that God's rightful king has come. Start there. It's the royal announcement that God's rightful king has come. He led a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death for our sins. He rose victorious over sin, death, and hell on the third day bodily. And all who believe that message, all who believe on his name, are saved from their sins. Saved from the day of wrath that is coming, surely coming, and is in our future. That's the gospel. That's it in a nutshell. And you need all those pieces. And so this book, Acts, is going to remind us of the gospel. It's going to remind us of the gospel. Next, number three. The book of Acts was written to provide, to prove that the gospel is true. It was written to prove that the gospel is true. Now, I'm going to read that same verse, but I'm going to emphasize a different, a different phrase in there. This is after he had suffered. He presented himself alive to them also with many irrefutable proofs, appearing to them over a duration of 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. There it is. So you've got this sufferer who suffers on the cross. There's no salvation without the cross. 
He's alive again, and he presents many irrefutable proofs of him being resurrected from the dead. And then what does he teach them? About the kingdom, about his kingdom that he's inaugurating in the world. So what convincing proofs are we talking about? What convincing proofs are we, is he referring to? Well, his own resurrected body. His own resurrected body. He has to show them. Look, put your, put your thumb right there. Feel that scar in my hand. Put your hand inside of my cloak and feel that scar where that lance went up beneath my ribs and pierced my heart. Look at the scars that I still bear from the crown of thorns. So Jesus is showing them his bodily. This is why John says in his letter, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we touched, that's what we proclaim to you. This is a sensate revelation. It is a revelation that comes through the senses for the apostles. Jesus has risen from the dead. They witnessed it, and now they're telling you, we saw it. We saw him risen. This is a bodily appearance. These are cumulative appearances. Why does it take 40 days? Have you thought about that? I mean, I, I would like to imagine it would only take me once. Then I would go, oh, wow, Jesus is alive. Sure, I believe. But no, it took 40 days. Why? Because psychologically, they were predisposed not to believe. This is one of the evidences that it's true. Psychologically, it was a barrier to belief in a man to a belief in a man who has claimed to be risen from the dead. No one could believe such a claim unless he was right there in front of you. So it takes 40 days for him to show them many convincing proofs. And it is on the basis of this hope in resurrection, a resurrected bodily man from the dead, Jesus the Messiah, God's royal son and his servant. It is on the basis of that belief that you and I have hope. And if it didn't happen, we have no hope at all. That's what Paul says. And then we also have the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. The testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Many have undertaken to write an account of how Jesus has fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. The Gospels are full of these prophecies, particularly the specific ones are in Matthew. But Luke does more. Luke goes a step further in that Luke doesn't just show how Jesus fulfilled individual prophecies. Luke shows how Jesus fulfilled the whole pattern, the whole story, the pattern of prophets suffering or being called and sent and delivering their message and then suffering and then being vindicated. This whole pattern is fulfilled now in the person of Jesus. And then you have the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most powerful things that you and I can experience. The witness, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. How does God reveal the truth to you? How does he? Well, he reveals it through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. It starts with the preaching. Paul says, how can they believe unless someone preaches? And how can that person preach unless they have been sent? So it starts with the proclamation of the gospel. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 1, he said, when I was among you, I just knew Christ and Christ crucified or on the cross, right? The message of the cross. So it's got to start with the preaching of the cross, but then the Holy Spirit has to confirm, has to enlighten your eyes, has to show you and warm your heart to it so that you can believe it. Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't give you an internal witness of it, it's just some message that you heard. But you got to have the message. You got to have the proclamation. But the Holy Spirit wants to reveal the truth of it. Look at what they say in Acts 5. They are before the Sanhedrin again. 
And this is what Peter says. It says, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered (laughs) by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior, servant and the son. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, salvation from our sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who believe in him. So we are the eyewitnesses. We saw all of this happen. We are testifying to you this happened. We believe it against all odds, against all barriers and defeaters to our belief. We're telling you it happened, and everyone who receives it, the Holy Spirit warms their heart to it. All who put their faith and their trust and their belief in it, the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind. The Holy Spirit bears witness. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. But he doesn't bear witness to just anything. He bears witness to the gospel. So if you've got a false gospel, he's not going to bear witness to that. He's not going to bear witness to that. So Jesus appeared to them almost for 50 days, providing them with many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then when he poured his Holy Spirit out on the church in Acts chapter 2, it was easy to believe. (laughs) It was easy to believe the message because the Holy Spirit was there to convince us of its truth. And then Luke is going to provide us with many good reasons in this book for why we should believe in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will do his work to shore up our faith, to give us the certainty of the things we've been taught. So here's the application today. We got to read the book. We have to read the book. If you want to strengthen your faith, if you want to encourage your faith, you got to read the book. I recommend that you read it daily. Like I've been reading it so much daily for so many years, I'm actually starting to, to listen to it daily. Because I'm, I'm finding a lot of things by listening to it on my little app in the morning, just one chapter. And I'm like, oh man, I never, I think I would have read right over that. So however you got to intake, however you got to get it in, you got to read it. You got to engage the book. And read it, eager to discover its truth. Come to the book with a heart for understanding. And read it with an open mind and an open heart. Allow God to speak into your life through this book. And read it in faith. Read it prayerfully. Read the text. Sometimes I study the text vigorously, academically. And I have to be stopped and reminded, hey, read it prayerfully. God wants to speak to you through this book. And read it in faith and read it in community. One of the most important things you can do is get in a small community, a small group, a house church, something. Get in that community, gather around the word. And Paul says in Romans 15, I'm confident that you're able to instruct one another. Instruct each other. You don't always need a pastor present. So your homework this week is to read Acts 1, 1 through 8. You can do that, right? We're going to talk about 1, 1 through 8 next week. That's our homework. Number two, we must be reminded what's so good about the good news. We have to be reminded what's so good about the good news. The central message of this book is the gospel, and you and I need to be reminded of the greatness of this good news. If the gospel of salvation is central to Luke's point, you and I need to know it, and we need to be reminded of it. And number three, we must be convinced of the truth And able to share it with others. So the question is, have you taken the time to learn some arguments and to learn some evidences to share with your friends about the truth? Because you should. You should sit down and share convincing proofs, just like Jesus did with the Messiah. Or just like Jesus did with the the disciples. 
you should be able to sit down and say, hey, this is the reason why I believe God's word and God's word alone, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament is the truth. You should be able to explain the resurrection. Here are the four reasons why I think the resurrection is historically verifiable. Can you do that? We need to learn that. And pray in faith that the Holy Spirit will enlighten the minds and the hearts of those you're witnessing to. All right. Good start. Super fun. Super happy good times. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for this book. So grateful that you're our teacher. And we just pray, Lord, that we would come in here every Sunday morning and receive this word with joy like those folks in that Nehemiah and Ezra revival, God, that we would come in and listen to the word with exuberance and celebration and joy and affirming its truth and a heart for understanding. And God, would you help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel? Help us to be able to share it with others, Lord. And so as we read this book, would you convince us? God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, do a work in us to fortify and reinforce our faith in Jesus the Messiah. We pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's close our time. Amen. amen. And amen. And affirm the truth.